Amen. Well, you may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ, who love God and who love people. It's a, uh, my name's Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to see you guys here in person. I know some of us are online, um, and so glad that you guys could join us as well. And so today, we're going to continue a series um, that we began um, uh, about a month or so ago in the book of First Peter um, called Rooted, Living Scattered, Not Shattered. And so on your way in, if you didn't grab one of these discipleship guides, this lets you know where we are in the series. Today is going to be week six, looking at rooted marriage. Um, and then as well, we've got these scripture journals that have the book of First Peter in it. We want to put God's word in your hands so that you have an opportunity to read, to study, to be shaped, uh, and to grow. And so to catch you up in this series... Uh, because I'm not just going to dive into, you know, seven tips for a better marriage kind of deal. I want us to have an understanding that we need to be rooted in our relationships. And First Peter, um, the first two chapters that get us to chapter three where we are today, kind of build on that theme. Starting with, hey, you need to have a rooted relationship with your identity. He's writing to these churches that are in exile um, uh, in Turkey, uh, modern-day Turkey, rather, Asia Minor. It's during the time of the Roman Empire, and he's writing to Christians who are in a culture and society that is, frankly, not Christian at all. And so he says, hey, I want you to know that, yeah, you live like exiles because, yeah, like there's some difference and some disconnect and some dissonance between what you believe, what you practice, what you know is true, and what the world around you is saying. He said, but you're also elect. You're also chosen by God, even though you're chastised by the world. And so, so be rooted in your relationship with your identity that you're known by God. And then he wants us to be rooted um, in our understanding of where we are in the story. Where are we in history? And so Peter says, hey, I want you to have a rooted hope. I want you to know that uh, when your relationship is rooted in Jesus, you have an eternal um, uh, destination and inheritance that is imperishable and is glorious and is unfading. And I want that future hope to power you to faithfulness today, while even as you look to the past, and, and I, I point to the table here, communion, looking to Jesus Christ's work on the cross to die for you, to say, God was faithful in the past. He has promised you an inheritance for the future so that you can endure today in whatever circumstances you're in. And then he says, hey, um, in, in addition to that, now that you know who you are and where you are in the story, I want you to have a rooted relationship with how you grow, that we grow by the mercy and grace of God, that, that good news, that's what the gospel is, the gospel is good news, it, good news is not just for tomorrow, but good news better be for today, and part of that is how we grow and change in Christ. And then he says, hey, your rooted relationship with, yes, the Lord, with understanding where you are in the, the world, with understanding where you are in the story, and, and how you grow, better be an understanding of how you're rooted in relationship with God's people. That however you came in today, um, if you're a Christian, like, like you are part of not just this church, but you're part of the church. All Christians across all times, across all continents and cultures. And the story does end with all of us in one church. The in-between time right? Things a little, not quite as simple, right? People in this church, people in that church, right? You know, and so he says all of that 
know who you are, know who you're with, know where you are in the story, I want you then to know how do you now engage and have a relationship with the world around you outside of these walls, if you will, but really outside of the people of God. And so last week we looked at how that plays out uh, in how you deal with government and authority, uh, you know, whether that's in school or your homeowners association or whatever. We looked at how that plays out, uh, yes, in civic life, but also then in work life, right? Uh, What's your relationship with work? How does that all play out? And then today is kind of a third arena for how our rooted understanding of relationships plays out in one of the most significant relationships that we are all impacted by. And that is rooted marriage. And so today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, you can turn there. Um, but all of this is, is kind of under the umbrella of the end, or, or rather middle of chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, where he says, hey, in all of your conduct and everything that you do and all the attitudes that you have, um, like be people of purity, be people uh, of integrity, so that when the world who's watching or the relationship you have with somebody else who's not a believer sees you, the only thing they can call out is, I don't agree with your God, or I don't agree with God's word. That nothing that we do should be a stumbling block or a hindrance to the people around us seeing the mercy, grace, and love of Jesus, um, but that our conduct amongst others still matters. And so uh, as we look at this idea of marriage, Some of you maybe came in single, some of you came in divorced, some of you have never been married, some of you are widowed. I I want you, like, some, you are like, oh man, I came in on the marriage one, you know, my my issue is really finances, or I came in on the marriage one, man, I really could talk about my kids, you know, or whatever it is, or maybe I just, I just need to know the truth of the gospel, like, we're going to do all of that today, well, not the finances and the kids, but I want you to start with this thesis. Every single person in this room and in this world is impacted by marriage. We're all impacted by, we'll see in the Bible here, the first marriage. All of you are impacted by the marriage of your parents, and you're like, well, you don't know my parents. They split up. You're impacted by that. Oh, I was raised by a single mom. You were impacted by that. Oh, I never knew my mom. I was adopted. You were impacted by that. Some of you are impacted by the marriage that you have or that you had. And if you're in Christ, all of us have the hope of a final marriage that we'll get to as we close out this sermon today. So I, I want you to understand that, that, this, that we are created for relationships. And while we have relationships with friends and family and neighbors and coworkers, each of these are important and edifying, but God has created one earthly relationship that is unique and distinct from all other earthly relationships in both its nature and in what it represents, and that is marriage. And so before we get to 1 Peter 3, because there's instructions there, and, and when you start with instructions and you don't know where you are in the story, things can get wonky. So I want us to, to take a minute here, a couple minutes, to just look at the gospel, the good news of God who created good, sin is entered the world in the fall, Jesus has come, given us redemption, Jesus comes back, gives us final restoration, that's the narrative of the Bible, that's what we call the good news of the gospel, and we're going to look real quick at marriage through that timeline before we get to 1 Peter. And so um, Genesis chapter 2, right, God's made everything good, he made man and woman in his image, male and female, he created created them. Those are designs from God. And he says, marriage has been given to men and women to reflect an exclusive and faithful and pure relationship that that mirrors the relationship we believe God has with his people. 
And so in chapter 2, verse 18, after making all things good, God says there's one thing that isn't good, and it's for man to be, anyone? Alone. Yeah, Paul knows. He's been married for a while. You know, Julie's gone. He's like, no, it's not good. And there's a reason for that. Because God's design and what God has called humanity to do is to be fruitful and multiply, to go subdue the earth, to cultivate, to create beauty, to create systems and structures of flourishing, to, to literally reproduce, right? And he's like, God can't do that on his own. So God creates woman. And in the creation narrative, both men and women were made in God's image, that means both men and women are worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. But noteworthy, God didn't make Adam and say, okay, well, I'll just make you another Adam, and then you guys can hang out. And God didn't change Adam and make him something else that, that maybe could just be good on his own. Instead, God made men and women worthy of dignity, worthy of respect, to be fruitful and multiply and he says, hey, Adam, I'm going to make for you this phrase that, that I'm going to say some things that might trigger some people today, but we're going to unpack it. Like, he says, I'm going to make you a helper suitable. And everyone now, all the ladies now are like, wait, what? So I'm like the assistant to the regional manager? Like that's the role? No, hard pass, okay? Helper suitable. Helper is not an assistant in this language. In Hebrew, it is a necessary person who has a position of honor. Adam, you are not enough on your own. I'm going to give you someone else that you need in order to fulfill what I've called both of you to do, to guard, protect, to cultivate, all those things. If you're not sure if that's true or not, just know that the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible is called the helper. Okay, third person of the Trinity, part of the Godhead. That's honor, that's respect. And then that word suitable or fit for literally means corresponding to or complementary with. So equal in dignity and value, equal um, in uh, respect and, and honor, and also different and distinct. To put quite simply, and I know this can be controversial today, but it has not been for millennia. Men are not women and women are not men. God has designed men, God has designed women, and they are unique and distinct. Both are needed. Both are necessary. Both are valuable. Both are part of God's design. Husbands are not wives. Wives are not husbands. Even in the narrative, though, so how does this relationship play out, right? Because, gosh, we, we really can't, we don't have good frameworks in our head for two things that are, are equal in value but distinct and different because we always try to make one better than the other, right? Instead, though, God trying to make sure that we get this concept uh, in the creation narrative, women comes from man's side. The significance of that being that she is not out in front or the head, she is not behind or below, but they are, in fact, alongside, together. And then when God brings them together in this first wedding, he says the two will become one flesh. So it's not that the wife loses her identity and becomes part of the husband. It's not that the husband loses his identity and becomes the wife. It's that the two become something new. And if there is like a who kind of gives up the most or who kind of changes the most, uh, right, in the creation narrative, it says men will leave their parents and draw near to their wife. And the outcome of this was that the two were naked and unashamed. And I think like that would be awesome. That would be great. But that's not how the story 
goes, right? It doesn't go very long that way, right? Where there's intimacy, where there's, you know, equality, where there's complementary design, all these things. Because really quickly, sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, and you're like, how did sin enter the world? And even if you're not a Christian, like, some of you know this creation narrative of how sin entered the world. You're like, oh yeah, Eve ate the fruit. Totally her fault. Nope. Now she did, and there is a failure, but she, and Eve did believe the, God, the lie that God doesn't love, his word can't be trusted, but let's be super clear, Adam failed too. And we know Adam failed because it says, and Eve gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. He's right there. He's been commissioned by God to lead, to protect, to serve, all, all those things. He sounds like he's part of the LAPD. Uh, okay, um, like he's, he's there, right? And he's been told God's word, and he failed. He was silent. And sometimes now we twist that and we're like, well, see, the problem was he listened to his wife. <laughs> Do that. Yeah, come into my counseling sessions. That's not going to go well with anybody, okay? Evil enters the world. It enters our hearts. And what sin does is sin separates. And sin separates us from God and it separates us from each other and it separates from us from ourselves. And, and when this sin happens, like, like God kind of shows back up on the scene, not that he was necessarily gone or absent, but God shows back up on the scene. And, and if Eve was the one responsible, I feel like God maybe would have called out Eve, but instead, who does he call out for? He calls out for Adam. Not because he's the head or authority, but because he's the one responsible. And then the outworking of this is that Adam is unaccountable, blame shifts, says, God, the problem is this woman you gave me. God, you're the problem. My wife's the problem. I'm not the problem. And God's like, hey, Eve, you got something to say to that? The devil made me do it. Totally his fault. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. You know, she tries to over-spiritualize, right? Guy doesn't want accountability. Lady over-spiritualizes, and we're already into gross gender stereotypes. Okay, let's keep moving on. Pain and conflict come for the woman, toil for the man, because God responds with, with curse, yes, but I have to tell you also mercy. Because God said, it, you know, you, you go outside of my law, it's not going to lead to life. And what we don't see is Adam and Eve being struck down, but instead we see Adam and Eve being covered by the sacrificial work of the Lord. It says he kills an animal to atone for the sin, and then he covers them with that animal skin. I want to cover your shame. I want to sacrifice for your sin. That's God answering sin with sacrifice and mercy. That's a theme that goes throughout the Bible. And he also gives grace, right? He, he, he gives them provision, yes, but he also promises them that while he covers the sin through sacrifice, he also says, hey, there's going to be one who comes who crushes the serpent. Who does the one come from? He says the path to victory over Satan's sin and death comes through woman and a son will be born. So you have both men and women, both genders, if you will, involved in this, in this victory over Satan and death. But there is still this curse, right? And it says um, that um, women are going to have pain in childbirth. There's other things uh, that are there. And, and, and the outworking of this is that husbands vacillate from absence or abuse. Wives are subjugated. At times, they're subversive. And this this dynamic that was supposed to be naked and unashamed is now this conflict. Conflict overshadows confession and compassion and complementary living. And instead, the very beginning, sexism gets woven in to our, the fabric of the world through sin, demonizing the other sex, 
sainting their own, and it ends up playing into our characterizations of marriage. And so man, we, need, we need hope in this, right? There's, 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 things are not hopeless, but man, you read through the Old Testament, and in a moment here, we will look at an Old Testament example uh, of um, a marriage, and, and there's some valuable things that we can see in that, but man, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that are descriptive and not prescriptive, meaning like that's what happened, but that's not what should have happened. But we need good news, we need hope. God sends Jesus. That son is born. He's born from a woman. He's adopted uh, into the family by Joseph, right? They, Mary and Joseph have a, a marriage of, of self-sacrifice, of, uh, of joy, of, of hardship, right? Their marriage matters. Jesus is raised uh, by that family. And, and as he begins his teaching on marriage and creation, Jesus reaffirms that creation design from Genesis 2 on marriage. So Jesus goes back and says, hey, marriage is between a man and a woman for the purposes of God's good design for flourishing. So with this, our goal is not to try to work our way back to the garden, but to look to Christ, who's the author and perfecter of our faith who leads us with forgiveness, with redemption, with grace. And so when we start to think about these Old Testament curses in Genesis 3, sometimes um, that plays itself out like, oh yeah, my, my desire is to rule over my husband, so that's just how I'm going to be. And some guys are like, yeah, the curse says she's going to try to rule over me, so I better put her down. Guys, we are not to live under the curse if you're in the New Testament. You do not live under the curse of sin. We live under the liberty of grace. We live new, we live differently. Christ died for our sins. He bared the curse already so that we don't live under the law, we live under his grace. And so, yes, our marriages are broken, there's sin, there's selfishness, because you get two imperfect people and you bring them together, even if they both love Jesus. And what happens is their, their sin doesn't necessarily get hidden, but it multiplies, right? Because that, that intimacy and that, that close relationship starts to reveal like our weaknesses, our sins, our hurts. And this relationship is intended to bring great joy. It's intended to bring flourishing. And, and I want you to know there is hope, right? Because we've been made new to be new. And, and when we say, hey, the, the gospel makes you new, part of how that plays out is in your relationships. That you're a new creation in your relationships, including if you're married, your marriages. I want to be clear, though. Marriage is not the gospel, but our marriages are made to reflect the gospel. I want to read this so that I get it right. The design, purpose, and roles of marriage transcend time, culture. So while there's specific applications, and this can change with time, right? Like, yeah, how does that all look? The underlying principles are timeless, and they are this. God has always intended marriage to be between one man and one woman to be an absolutely equal and fundamentally complementary partnership for the purposes of displaying his glory, for the joy and flourishing of his people. You're like, why do we have a 20-minute intro to a 45-minute sermon? And it's because I think it's so important for us to understand the context of redemptive history, to understand God's design in marriage, his good design, how sin plays into this, how atonement plays into this, how hope plays into this. Otherwise, we're going to start to not see the good news that's in these verses, and you might apply or have applied to you some of the instruction that's in these verses wrongly. So that leads us 
to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter, unlike Paul, was a guy who was maybe possibly married, maybe his wife left him. We know that Peter, uh, when he became a Christian, we know that Peter has been married, or is married rather. How do we know Peter's married in the Bible? Very simple. Peter, it says, has a mother-in-law. And no man that I know has said, I don't know if I want marriage, but I for sure want to have a mother-in-law. Right? No, relationships, right? The one primary relationship. So Peter is married. He's got some experience in this. He's writing to these Christians, who some of which are, are married to non-believers, and how does that work, and what's that going to look like? And some of them are believers together, and what does that look like? And he's got very specific instructions to wives, rooted wives, instructions that are to the wife, but I believe paint a picture of a rooted marriage, and then finally instructions for the husband. So if early on wives uh, or, or women, you're like, I don't when's he going to say something about the guys? Don't worry, it's here. Vice versa. So please, please hang with me on this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 say this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, meaning our Christians, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct... Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adornment be hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Wow, there's a lot of words in there that make a lot of people super angry. And sometimes it's because people stinking suck and do bad things to other people. And sometimes it's legalistic Christians and sometimes that's lawless non-believers and everyone in between. So let's look at this for a moment, okay? I have to break it down. When he says likewise, that means literally similar. The context being in all you do in marriage should be motivated by those verses that are earlier in 1 Peter that all of your motivation is for the Lord's sake. So he's getting back to what's your primary relationship? Wives, and then later he will do this for husbands. It is with the Lord, it is motivated by who God is and how he's made you to be and in response. And then he just gets into the instruction and says, wives, you should have a posture and disposition. In this case, even when and especially when married to an unbeliever of respect, of good conduct, in general, I have to say in general, because there's caveats to everything, wives should live in purity and respect with their husbands. And it needs to be said that, that while there are unique roles in marriage, the relationship uh, between husbands and wives, because this, this, this follows a section where he's talked about like governors and subjects and slaves and masters and you know, employees and all that, parent, child. Like, guys, that is not the relationship he's talking about here because those are incredibly hierarchical, right? Parents, kids, that's different. Saying, no, 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 this is husbands and wives. It's not boss, employee, or government and citizen. And you're like, yeah, but it says, wives be subject to your own husbands. That word subject to means submit to. It's the same word used across the New Testament when you see the word submission spoken about in, in a variety of relationships. But I want to highlight this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, uh, which, which is right before when Paul writes and says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands love your wife as Christ. Love the church. Um, right before that, in Ephesians 5, 21, Paul says, Christians... Submit to 
one another. Submit to one another. So if we're going to have a good, biblical, gospel definition of submission, we have to say what it's not and what it is. So submission is a willing, not demanded, posture of humility or deference that we take to or with others. To be clear, it's not something anyone is owed or that you demand from other people. I'm owed submission. I demand submission. No, that's not the marriage relationship. Peter's writing this to the wives to encourage and equip godly behavior, not to husbands to assert authority or enforce that godly behavior. That matters. Gospel submission is not subjugation to another, but humility shown to others. So to make it so crystal clear, husbands do not call your wives to submit to you. Amen. All right, we got one clap. Awesome. Okay. Didn't hear the guys clapping. <laughs> Lydia Brownback, awesome commentator, describes it this way. Wife's submission to husband, what it is and what it isn't. She says this, and you might not like these words, but that's fine. The lady said it. What it is, helping, which we already talked about, honor, Partnership, respecting, honoring, encouraging, and at times, deferring. What it's not. Giving up your identity, tolerating abuse, participating in sin, having your views squashed, or having no voice. There is never room or excuse in a rooted marriage, in the gospel's understanding of marriage, in the Bible's understanding of marriage, for abuse to take place. That is not our call. Wives, that is not your call. That doesn't mean that the first time you have a fight, that you pack up your bags and leave. It doesn't mean that you're never sinned against or, or, or that you never sin in marriage. But I have to be clear because sometimes wives get this idea of like, I'm called to submit to my husband and, and our Lord Jesus, he suffered abuse and, and I want to follow Jesus. Like, no, Jesus suffered abuse for you so that you could be free. Your call as a Christian, particularly as a wife, is not to abuse, but is to peace, to wholeness, to joy. Not fleeting happiness, but to joy. So rooted wives have their primary relationship, not as a wife, but as a daughter of the king. You're loved by the Lord, and so you can and you do point your husbands to the Lord. And so sometimes you read these verses, and like, my, my mom was a gal. She married a guy who wasn't a Christian. She loved the Lord. At that point, she looked at these, Lord, these verses, and she's like, this must be a promise that my husband's going to become a Christian. No, this is not a promise. This is a principle. By God's grace, God did something amazing in my dad's life after about 12, 13 years of marriage where he went to a Billy Graham crusade and he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and he became a Christian. And the, the trajectory and the, the difference in their marriage, um, like, while not perfect, is palpable. And I'm thankful and grateful for that. But that doesn't always happen. We've had the joy of wives who've prayed for their husbands and then getting to see those husbands love and serve Jesus and get baptized. We get to do that again this Easter. That's awesome. And we have wives who don't, whose husbands aren't Christians who are still loved by the Lord who are known, loved, cared for, and who love and have great flourishing marriages with their husbands. And, you know, we would love that they all come to know and love and serve Jesus. 
But the purpose of what he's saying here is that you are never alone. God is near. And then he goes on to some other instructions in verses 3 and 4. And oh my word, I have seen these played out so poorly in the life of the church. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on of jewelry, or clothing you wear, but let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart and perishable beauty, gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sake is precious. And so what we do... As we go like super dugger on this, uh, and, and if you don't know what that means, like the, the fundamentalist family out in uh, Arkansas, like, oh, okay, well, anyway, you know, just that means, hey, ladies, women, you, you don't need to be focused on your outward appearance at all. In fact, if you are, you're probably not very spiritually mature or healthy. <laughs> no, that's not what it's saying. Internal beauty is greater than external adornment. That's the, the principle. That's the purpose. The root of wives have an inner life that is tapped into the love of God, and that produces life and beauty within them. And so verses three and four, the focus is on the inner life. But that doesn't mean you have to or should or necessarily neglect or reject outward appearance. These verses, to be clear, are not a prohibition against outward adornment, but a prioritization of inward adornment. Our God made the stinking sunset. He likes beauty. And so there's no like greater spiritual value to, to not be interested in the ideas of beauty or the things that are beautiful in, in, in creation and in our lives. Yes, there's stewardship. Yes, there's, you know, do things that are, that are wise and, and all of that. But let's be really clear that our God is a God of beauty. And so identity is not found, he says, in the external, but it's rooted in the internal with an enduring beauty that is eternal. That's the framework he's using. And then you're like, well, hey, does that mean that I'm supposed to be quiet and silent? No, uh, when it says gentle and quiet spirit, the words mean, um, it doesn't mean mild and silent, like, oh, I should never have an opinion. No, it, the word gentle means not fierce or crude. The word Quiet actually means calm and not violent. Another way of saying that is peaceful. So it's not mild and silent, but it's peaceful, not crude. He says, what's on the outside will fade, but what God does in our hearts is imperishable. And then he goes on. He starts to talk to, about marriage in general. He's still talking to the wives, but he's going to talk about a marriage here that I think is important for us to see. Verses 5 and 6 say this talking about that internal disposition. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting, same word, to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, we'll get there, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Paul, or rather Peter, he's writing to a, a, a bunch of people who, who know their Bibles. There's likely a lot of Jewish um, converts who've become Christians who know the Old Testament. So when he says Sarah and Abraham, they know about Sarah and Abraham. We have like this much biblical literacy, and so we don't really know a lot about Sarah and Abraham. So we're going to do a, a minute here, a couple minutes of Old Testament story time, so that we can understand who he's talking about with this. So Sarah, Abraham... They are great patriarch and matriarch uh, of kind of God's family. Uh, God made a promise through Abraham, then through Isaac, then through Jacob, that, that through them all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He made a special promise to Abraham where he says, your children, or your offspring are going to outnumber uh, the sands uh, 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 and the stars. And, and there's this promise. And so, um, excuse me, they have this marriage. And I love 
that they bring up Abraham and Sarah. Because Abraham and Sarah are an absolutely perfect example of an imperfect marriage. Absolutely perfect example of an imperfect marriage. Author Sheila Gregory points to some of the key interactions between Abraham and Sarah. So she helped me kind of kind of find where these verses were, and then I dug into them, and, and, and then the rest of that's kind of kind of what I saw on this. And so Genesis 12, right away, um, Abraham is called to leave his people, right? Kind of like that, that first marriage, right? Hey, you're gonna lead your people, you're gonna go to where I'm gonna send you, uh, and, and that's gonna be ultimately the promised land. And it just says in Genesis chapter 12 that Sarah followed. Okay, so, all right, Sarah followed. Sarah followed her husband. She responded to his leadership uh, in this case. And so, you know, the big takeaway, right, would be, hey, when God tells you something, you should follow. And if your husband's following the Lord, go ahead and follow your husband. Number two, because <laughs> things don't go well right away. You're like, all right, they're following the Lord. What could go wrong? We're two Christians. We got married. We went to church. What could go wrong? Ha, lots. Okay, so and some of you have been married for a while, and you know this. Genesis chapter 12, and again in, in 20, hopefully you didn't do this, but we'll, we'll see. Um, right away, they, they face a lot of adversity in their marriage. They've, they've likely been married for a while, but they're, they're facing marriage on this journey of being faithful to the Lord. And they find themselves in a foreign land, and, and Sarah's known as very beautiful. Um, Abraham, uh, I don't know what he's known for, just kind of, he wrestled with the Lord, that's great. Um, and so, um, very beautiful, and, and Abraham is, is freaked out because we're in this foreign land, and man, they, they're going to they're like, take my wife, and they're going to kill me. That's what they're going to do. And so in Genesis 12, and again in chapter 20, he says, could you tell him you're my sister? And then, and then they'll take you as like a wife, and, and it'll, like, it'll go really, really well for us. Don't don't do that. Bad news bears all the way around. And, and so this happens. He, he lies um, to the king saying Sarah's his wife. And, and she's taken, not once, but twice, just like Liam Neeson, their sequels on the taken thing, okay? She's taken and then rescued by God before she could be used in abuse. Praise God. But what's noteworthy is in Genesis 12, 13, when he's kind of hatching this plan, if you will, he doesn't say, wife, submit to me and obey me in this. Instead, Abraham, he appeals to her. He doesn't command her. He asks her for the purpose of saving his life and blessing, in some sense, both of them. Is it a great plan? No. Should you do it ever? No, 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 no. He does it twice, gets away with it. Oh, my gosh. It took the Lord speaking to a pagan king to say, back off, to have it work out. Later in Genesis 16, or rather, sorry, yeah, Genesis 16, um, they've been promised these kids. Sarah hasn't had any yet. She's getting very old. God reiterates his promise uh, to them. I'm sorry, in, in chapter 16, um, God hasn't said anything. Sarah uh, and Abraham are like, you know, God hasn't really fulfilled this promise for a while. And so if you're like, oh, Abraham, what a jerk, what an idiot. Sarah comes up, and Sarah's like, you know what? God promised us that we've had kids. We haven't had kids yet. So, um... Abraham, here's my handmaid, Hagar. You should go be with her. And then whatever kid she has, we'll just call that our kid. We'll, we'll do this to like, make God's will happen. And um, it goes really badly. As you can imagine, right? They're all in the same household together. Jealousy, abuse, abandonment, 
I mean, just absolute brokenness in the family. It did not go well. Jealousy, all those things, right? To be clear, absent in any of these verses of that narrative are either Abraham or Sarah seeking the Lord or following the Lord. It's just them with their own dengum plans. And, and again, God rescues because he intervenes to give comfort to Hagar, who's the victim of their scheme. Neither sought for God. Like, oh my gosh, how could their marriage ever recover from these things? It did. They were faithless. God was faithful. And in Genesis 18, a chapter later, God reiterates his promise to Sarah and to Abraham and her response. And this is where it gets us to verse 6, where it says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him the Lord. This is where they get that. This is where Peter gets that from. She says, wait, you're going to make this promise happen after I'm worn out and my Lord is old? She calls him Lord, but the context, she's literally laughing. It's almost a joke. The word for Lord there isn't like the Lord, meaning it's not a word for God. It's a word that would translate more like sir or mister. Like I'm worn out and, and my old man is, is old. To be clear, it is a word of respect as an equal, but it's not a word, word of reverence. That's my Lord. That's that guy. We, we love each other. We're still in it together. He's not perfect. I'm also not perfect. And then in Genesis 21, Sarah finally, uh, God's still faithful. They they have Isaac. um, And then Sarah's like, no, I want Hagar and Ishmael gone. And Abraham's like, "Uh, that's the son. And Abraham's like, I'm not having it. That's my first son. Like, I don't want to do that at all. Like, I don't like your plan, wife. Like, we've got the kid, but like, I I don't like what you're saying at all. And then he's told by the Lord in Genesis 21, 12, listen to Sarah and do what Sarah says. Because God's working in it. And so like the only like submission and obedience you actually see at this point is, is in this case Abraham actually doing what Sarah says. Now he's led by the Lord, but what I love about this picture, it's a picture of a very complex marriage with yes, mutual trust and respect. Times when God's leading, times when, when neither of them are following the Lord. And in all of this, We're called to follow God, to do what's right. Is Sarah perfect? Nope. Is Abraham perfect? Nope. The only hero in the entire marriage in any of those stories is God. God who rescues Sarah, God who comforts Hagar, God who calls them to this new mission, God who tells Abraham, do what your wife says, she's right. God is the hero in the marriage. And that applies to all of our marriages. Rooted marriages do what God's commands. Wives, you don't just follow your husband to sin when he wants to sin. Husbands don't allow or acquiesce when when wives want to lead to sin. Like wives obey God, husbands obey God, love and submit to one another. Like I said, I gotta say it again, men and women are equal in value and dignity. They're also distinct as created beings. And so yes, there are God-given circumstances. uh, Sorry, there's God-given design and yep, there's cultural circumstances and there's times and seasons. And so what it calls us to do when we have an understanding of, of a gospel marriage, of a rooted marriage is in some regards to just avoid lazy stereotypes or or proof texting and to actually 
discern and seek God's will in our marriage. And so I just, I would just please implore us as the people of God who are just tearing each other apart right now over these issues to, to, to just set aside lazy stereotypes. Men are always abusers. Women are always manipulators. In my 15 years of ministry, I've seen men who've abused their wives. I've seen wives who have abused their husbands. I've seen men who've been domineering and, 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 and leading their wives in such a way that, that they don't have a voice. And I've seen women do the same to their husbands. I've seen men commit adultery. I've seen women commit adultery. I've seen uh, like men uh, who have just advocated and, and checked out. I've seen women who have advocated and checked out. I've seen people walk in bitterness. And I've seen forgiveness. And I've seen restoration. And I've seen repentance. And I've seen necessary endurance where it's like, yep, no, this marriage isn't perfect, but the call is endurance on it. And I've seen necessary and painful divorce where the final call is to peace. What I haven't seen is husbands and wives both living out respect, honor, mutuality, and it not leading to some semblance of flourishing. The more we live out God's design, the more fruit and joy there is. All Christian men and women are called to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, patient, love, joy, right? Tenderness, self-control. To love, serve, honor, to submit to one another. And so our marriages need the gospel as they even try to reflect the gospel. And this requires some humility from both husbands and wives. Again, I have to be clear, not in cases of abuse, okay? But we marry people, right, because we're drawn to them in some way, shape, or form. And, and we're, we're drawn to them in, 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 in either who we think they are or who we think they're going to become, and then we get into our marriages and we start to play a, a fun little game of like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that that's who you are. And then we play another game called, okay, I know I'm not perfect, but man, I'm a lot more closer to it than that one is. <laughs> right? And we both do it. Husbands and wives both do it. And it doesn't work. Tim and Kathy Keller say it this way in Meaning of Marriage. And, and again, this is, when there's mutuality, it says, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. Wives, you will not fix your husbands. Husbands, you will not fix your wives. You are not the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean we don't address sin. It doesn't mean that we don't encourage one another. But we don't always start with, well, the main problem is my spouse again, unless there's abuse or other situations like that. Because you're not going to, if you do that, you're not going to have intimacy, you'll have isolation. You won't have vulnerability, you'll have violence. And so there's, there's a mutual joy and struggle that leads to, to growth where our marriages exist like by the grace of God to proclaim what's true about God. And part of that is his intentional love for his people. And so in, in this section here, I hope you can see that we can trust like God in the ups and downs of our marriages. And that leads us to the verse for the guys here. It's a, it's a short one, but man, it's got a lot in it. Verse 7, 
This is the verse for rooted husbands. Likewise, again, because your motivation is to follow the Lord and to respond to the Lord. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you, or some translations, they are joint heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. A rooted marriage with a rooted husband, guys, will include great intentionality from the husbands, where there's an understanding of a husband's role that that includes servant leadership. And I know sometimes that word lead is a four-letter word. He's supposed to lead? It is a four-letter word, quite literally. L-E-A-D, okay, I counted right, okay. But it's a four-letter word when it's not paired with another four-letter word. And that is love. Ephesians 5, he says three different times, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. And so this love is not soft and sentimental. It's not superficial attraction. That's, that's the Greek word for phileo. It's a strong, intentional, action-oriented, outcome-desiring, self-sacrificial, what's called agape love. It's a love that produces something, produces flourishing. So any aspect of leading is this. Two words to hold on to. Intentionality and initiation. Intentionality and initiation in serving, honoring, sacrificing, engaging, protecting, and provision. That doesn't mean the wife always makes, or the husband makes more, the wife makes less. It just means engage in those things. And I might be wrong, but I don't know that there are wives out there that say, you know, I don't really want more initiation and intentionality from my husband in sacrificial love. This is God's design. You are called to sacrificially love your wife intentionally. And Peter explains what it looks like. He says, you're going to live with your wife in an understanding way. That, that gets to the principle of being called to be a student of your wife. Husbands, ask your wives questions like, how do you experience and receive love and affection? Hint, it might be different than how we do or how you do. How has God uniquely made you? How have your experiences helped shape you? What wounds have you suffered that I would love to help tend to or explore? What victories have you achieved that I can celebrate and help lift up? Where are you relying on Christ? Where are you rooted internally? Where's your hope eternally? How do you engage externally? We have a disposition of listening to and from our wives for the purpose of loving and leading for their and our mutual flourishing. And so this means our our energy, husbands, and leadership are used to protect and provide in a way that foster a bride's flourishing. And he says the reason for this or how this looks is you're going to honor the weaker vessel. Whew! Weaker vessels been so misunderstood and misapplied in the church context. I've participated in that in years past, and then I, you know, learned some. I want to say it this way. It's not that men are a hammer and women are a teacup. 
Because guys, if you're a hammer, then everything is a nail. Wives, if you're a teacup and you're just fragile, maybe you're of great value but of very little use because nobody really likes tea. <laughs> right? Amen. I got an amen on that one? Okay. We know Ted Lasso doesn't, right? Just brand on dirty water. Okay. The context of the Greek on weaker vessel is not about strength. It is about the societal context in the Greco-Roman world where women were seen as a less than social status. So what the application here is, is because your wife out in that society is seen as a less than vessel, your response, husband, is to be counter-cultural to the, to the patriarchal world of that time. And your response is to then show honor to her where the world sees her as dishonorable. So it is a lifting up, never a tearing down. It is a respect. In fact, actually, it's a greater word than respect because respect is like, yeah, I respect you. Honor is, I lift you up. You are worthy. You are amazing. You are lifting up to seek to free your bride from everything that hinders her from being the her that God created her to be. That's our job. And there is, yes, reciprocation. But a hus husband's loving leadership, if you're using that terminology, and, and the New Testament does, I can't, like, culturally, I'd love to get away from that, but I can't, because it does use the term source, head, leadership, all those different things, okay? But the outworking, how it's experienced, should be the most liberating, earthly relationship that a woman has with anybody else, where she feels loved, honored, respected, cared for, all of those things. I've said before that in order for something to be beautiful, it has to be true. I, I'm paraphrasing from another teacher on that one. I believe as well, in order for something to be true, it better look beautiful. Because our God's the author of truth and beauty. And so where legalism reigns in our marriages, there needs to be repentance. Where, let's check out God's design, reigns in our marriages, there needs to be repentance. He says the reason for this is because your wives are to be shown extravagant honor in word and deed because they are joint heirs of God's grace. Again, it was in such a stark contrast to the Roman understanding of inheritance where inheritance always went through the men's line. Here he's saying, hey, you need to know how the kingdom of God looks. The kingdom of God looks like men and women as joint heirs and inheritors of the kingdom of God. So why don't you all start practicing in your marriages now? That's the call. That's the call. To put bluntly, a man's prayers are hindered when he doesn't listen to and respect their wives. Because he says it right here, right at the end, right? If you don't do this, your prayers may be hindered. Husbands, love your wives. Honor your wives. But don't expect that if you're not, that somehow you and the Lord are still totally awesome. I'm not treading theologically on your eternal salvation. I'm saying it's a call to repentance. The great reformer John Calvin said it this way in the 16th century in talking about respect and leadership in marriage. Husbands should not be cruel towards their wives or think that all things that they please are permissible and lawful. For their authority 
should rather be a companionship than a kingship. Our marriages are companionships, not, like I said last week, benevolent dictatorships. Husbands, guys, I know this is like, man, how do I do this? I've met guys who are like, this is crushing. I can't love my wife like Christ loved the church. Husbands, wives, we both need the gospel. Husbands, we need the gospel. And I just want to encourage you men that often the greatest changes in marriages begin with the greatest change in the men. I do believe that. That men have a great impact on their marriages. You have an amazing impact on your marriages, either positively or negatively. Either in your, in your intentional action or in your absence. Either in your initiating affection or in abuse. Husbands, we need forgiveness. We need the gospel in our identity and power to walk out these good works that we've been called to. I just, just to put it simply, guys, we've been loved by Jesus so that we can love like Jesus in our marriages. To recap, because I know we're going long. I just feel like this is so important for us. The design, purpose, and role of marriage between one man and one woman transcends time and culture. So no matter what's happening in the world, the specific applications, they might change with time, but the underlying principles are the same. That God has always intended from the beginning, reiterated by Christ, for marriage to be absolutely equal, absolutely equal, and fundamentally complementary partnership between a man and a woman that is characterized by love and respect for the purpose of displaying his glory for the joy and flourishing of his people. Husbands, you are the loving servant leader of the wife. Wife, that means you are the joyful recipient of honor, love, and that you reciprocate by respecting the one you love who loves you. A rooted marriage is an example of two people loved by God, rooted in God, like made one by God through, through active, covenantal, intentional, forgiving, faith-building love. And, and, and out of that, it should get progressively more beautiful, and we understand that that's not always the case. And so if you stuck with me this long, particularly if you're not married or, or, or haven't been married, like I, I want to reiterate that all of us are impacted by marriage. Yes, by the first marriage. Yes, by our parents' marriage or lack of. Maybe one that we have. But I want you to know that no matter where you are in your journey of faith, like all of us can have real and lasting hope no matter what the condition of our marriage is or whether we even have one at all. We can all have hope in the final marriage. And that leads us to the end of the story. last verses and we are done. It says this. Revelation 19. This is how the, the story ends of the Bible, 19, six through nine, says this. Then I heard what seemed to be a, a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's Jesus, his bride, that's the church. 
has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself, adorn herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's the people of God. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he said, these are the true words of God. If you have not been invited to that final wedding feast, let today be your marriage invitation. To, to repent of sin, to trust Jesus as your Savior and as your King, and know that at the end of your life, at the end of human history, we all are together at an amazing wedding, like best food, best drink, where the groom is Jesus, who sacrificed for his bride, and we celebrate that at communion, where we see his body broken and blood shed for us, if you're a Christian, man or woman, that means you're part of the bride. And you are made clean and pure and holy and ready for that wedding day by the blood of Jesus Christ sacrificing for your sins and the power of the Holy Spirit growing you and changing you as a new creation. So whether you are single, married, divorced, widowed, whatever, we can have hope in the blessing of that final wedding that when you are in Christ, you're not defined by that first wedding that brought pain and sorrow, but you get to look forward to that final wedding that is a triumph where glory echoes into eternity. We have hope in that final marriage when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.